Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Honey & Co. It's with me, Sarit Packer. We hold the talks in our deli, Honey and Spice, in front of a small audience. We ask the people we admire from the world of food to come over. Cooks, waiters, makers, writers, drinkers and thinkers. We have something to eat, a glass of wine, and they tell us about making their life in food. This week, back by popular demand, we're joined by the wonderful Olya Hercules. For those who don't know, Olya was born in the south of Ukraine. After studying and working as a journalist in the UK, she retrained as a chef at Leith's. Olya visited us earlier this year to talk about her first book, Mamushka, that celebrated her family recipes from the Ukraine across Eastern Europe. But today she's here to talk about her new book, Caucasus, a culinary journey through Georgia, Azerbaijan and beyond. Keep listening if you want to hear Olya and I chat about her journey, things, good things that happen, a few bad things that happen, and a lot about food of the region and its characteristics. It's really interesting and a beautiful book. Hi everyone. Today we have the lovely Olya Hercules. She was here with us last year? Uh, yeah, last year on her previous book, Mamushka, which was all about Ukraine, a food she grew up on, a very personal book. And this time she's here with... Caucasus, which is a new book. It's beautiful. Beautiful cover and beautiful inside. Tell us a bit about the book, where the idea came from, what inspired everything. So I come from the south of Ukraine originally, but because of the Soviet Union, we were kind of into mixed, I guess, and culturally even. However hard they tried to kind of suppress cultures and um, languages and food, they did manage. So um, one of my aunties is actually half Armenian, um, half Ukrainian. But she grew up in Baku, in Azerbaijan. It's all very complicated and complex uh, regionally. Uh, so, so she was in Azerbaijan. And uh, one day my mom and my dad decided to, uh, you know, jump into our ladder. And that, that was 30 years ago. And we drove from the south of Ukraine through Crimea, then took a ferry to Sochi in Russia, and then drove from Sochi through Abkhazia and into Georgia and then through Georgia into eventually we got to Baku. Um, that was in 1986, I guess, uh, 87. Um, yeah, and it was uh, it was an amazing trip. Even though I was little, I still remember kind of bits of it. And even if some things that I forget, like my family are such amazing storytellers. Uh, their stories are so vivid. Sometimes I almost feel like I've got a false memory. That's how... Um, that's how amazing they are telling stories so we've always talked about this trip as well so my auntie um, her family is originally from Karabakh Nagorny Karabakh which is now a disputed um, area uh, lying between Azerbaijan and Armenia they actually had to leave Azerbaijan in, um, uh, very soon after we visited them because the war broke, broke out between the two nations and they relocated to Ukraine to Kiev but when I finished Mamushka, I knew immediately that I'd have to go back to Caucasus because it's just such an incredible area. As you know, it's sandwiched between kind of Turkey and Iran. It's got Armenia and uh, Russia, um, you know, on top. So very friendly neighbors, everyone. But they have managed to preserve their culture, their language. And now um, the Soviet Union, obviously, with industrialization and just how horrible they were, you know, they've managed to suppress a lot of 
things like cheese making, wine making, you know, it's, it's all kind of gone down. Um, but now, especially in Georgia, people are picking up again. And it was so inspiring to go there and to meet people. I, I literally we, I went there with my brother uh, for, for a research trip to begin with. So we traveled all around both Georgia and Azerbaijan, taking these crazy vans called marshrutkas. Kind of you pay five pounds and they take you three hours east or west or where you, wherever you're going. And I was lucky enough to meet people. But I just asked someone on um, on social media, you know, do any Georgian friends know anyone? And then somebody named someone and then it just kind of snowballed. And um, and I just collected all of these contacts and people. And even when we were there with my brother, each day that someone else appeared, they'd be like, no, you have to go there. And, you know, in Emirati, this amazing natural wine festival is happening now. So we'll... Just go there, and it was uh, it was a bit crazy to be honest with you, um, but we managed. We went on our long trip to Georgia, and then we went to Azerbaijan. I couldn't travel. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, we needed to bribe people on the train. It was <laughs> language-wise. Is um, this an issue? Or no. Um, well, basically, I I didn't want to use my British passport, uh, and I needed a visa because I wanted to go to Armenia afterwards. Maybe I shouldn't be talking about this. <laughs> no, I'm joking. It was fine. Um, yeah, basically, if you go, if you travel to either one of the countries, you can't uh, travel to another because there's an embargo. So yeah, so we did our uh, mad trip, and then um, uh, so met loads of people. Just this is what I love. Uh, you know, people sometimes interviews ask me like, who inspires you? And of course, there are food writers, there are chefs, there are so many amazing people. But actually, it's the people that I meet. Um, whether it's in Ukraine, like my family, you know, really inspired my first book. And with the second book, it was all the people that I met. So what was the best cooking experience that you had while you were traveling? Oh, cooking. Oh, this uh, woman, um, there's this area in, uh, in Georgia, in um, uh, east north of Georgia called Zvaneti. So Zvaneti Mountains, uh, they are just incredible. So we, we had to drive in Marshrutka to a town that was kind of near. And then we had to go. Uh, find a four by four because that's the only way that you get there and then we drove into this little village and I stayed with this woman um, you've made her recipe today it's Tina's Khachapuri uh, for a crowd um, she um, basically she was a village doctor so imagine these amazing like Alps like incredible mountains wild grass and uh, herbs and just things that they use but this lady Tina uh, was a doctor, she was a village doctor, so she would uh, walk to work every morning by foot. She, I don't know why, but she refused to use a bike or a horseback or whatever. She was just like, no, I need to walk. But uh, I suspect she did it because on the way she'd meet loads of older people that couldn't go to the hospital and she'd come and help them. She was just an amazing, beautiful person. So she would, but she would wake up first and like milk her eight cows, you know, so farming and a doctor and just really inspiring. Um, so uh, in the morning, you know, she'd give us a breakfast of this Matsoni yogurt. Um, they use this special Caspian bacteria and they make these incredible yogurts and sour kind of milk products. So she made it every morning and she used Vanetti salt to sprinkle on top. And that is, they basically just take loads of salt, loads of raw garlic and the spices that she actually grows, you know, the wild blue fenugreek and dill seed and things like that. And they put all of the salt and garlic and spices through like an old school meat grinder. And then comes out this slightly wet, it wasn't, it, was, it dries out eventually, but this flavored, basically beautiful salt. So that was one of the things that she made for us. But what she taught me how to make was uh, suluguni cheese. So it's a Georgian cheese, which um, you have imitations in kind of, you know, Eastern European Russian shops, but they're not good cheeses. 
uh, unfortunately, you can't find it. And because of the regulations, they can't really uh, export it. You know, obviously, I've read and looked through so many Georgian books from, you know, the beginning of the century to... And not one of them had a recipe for the cheese. Uh, you'd always have substitutions, which I give as well in some recipe. Obviously, you, not everybody's going to go and make a, make a cheese. But I, I asked her um, to show me how to make it, and she did. And this is the brine cheese, the way it's... This is the yeah. brine cheese, and everybody... There's so many people that I visited actually have these, like, big barrels with a, with a brine and, you know... And they just In make a cheese. She cheese. made cheese every day, every morning. She'd make a fresh cheese and then either they eat it fresh or she'd put it in the brine and kind of start making subaguni. That was an amazing process. So, she, so, she'd put this, so she made a fresh cheese with like big holes and then she'd put it into hot water and basically it'd start melting and she'd pull it. And yeah, it was just a magical, magical experience. Really cool. That's really interesting. Tell me a bit about ingredients that you think typify the area, stuff that you really should introduce to your palate if you want to cook from that area. So they love the fruit in savory recipes, uh, which I guess would be a Persian influence, but but I, I think Persians maybe use a lot more dried fruit kind of thing. The, for example, one of my favorite dishes would be um, charkhali. So it's beetroot, boiled beetroot, very simple. And then um, they'd make this sauce called kemali, which is one of the best condiments in the world, I think. So it's a spicy, garlicky, plum sauce, you know, like a plum ketchup or... And they would basically boil the beetroot. I boil it in the skin, then take the skin off, cut it, and then you'd mix it in this kemali um, plum sauce. And it's just amazing. I've had people who hate beetroot and they've been like, we're now converted. <laughs> I've actually got something downstairs that I'm going to show you as well. I'm growing it here now. Another thing that they use a lot is, is um, called ombalos. It's like a penny royal mint. Right. I say in the book, it's, you know, if you had like a mint and oregano kind of making love and they had a, they had a love child, that would be that. So it has the mintiness, but also this beautiful marjoram almost flavor. I'm growing it now at home and um, it, they add it to this beetroot and oh, plum nice. thing. So it's something, you know, some ingredients are so familiar. But then the way that they use them, uh, and you just get something completely different. And the blue fenugreek, which is something that's new to me. We use a lot of fenugreek as the yeah, dried spice, but blue fenugreek is nothing I've heard of before. Uh, so it's, diff- it's, it's, uh, it's called blue fenugreek because the flowers are, are blue, but it's actually very different. So they, they say it's an endemic Georgian spice. Uh, but then about a couple of things I've heard actually people from the Alps were like no we have that as well it's not <laughs> it's not just in Georgia it's also in the Alps um, but yeah it's beautiful it's not it's not as bitter it doesn't have that bitterness and it's actually quite a complex spice in itself and so you almost uh, feel like um, there's a few spices in in one spice and the whole um, world of the salt you have a jika salt and yeah stuff like exactly that. So these are all condiments that are used in part of the cooking? Yeah, uh, so the ajika salt was another ingredient that I, and actually you can't even, even in Georgia, even in Belize in the capital, it's not the same. It's in that area in Western Georgia that I, that I went, it was just incredible. Uh, but you can actually make it at home if you find blue fenugreek and things, or make a version of it, which would still be delicious. I think it's the amount of kind of garlic that you mix with the salt that also makes it so delicious. It's so amazing on eggs, on anything, yeah. yeah. I'm dying to go to that area to travel, but tell me what was the worst thing that happened? Uh, I'm going to show everyone a picture why I'm asking that question. <laughs> oh no, that wasn't, that wasn't the worst. No, that, but, I don't think it's the worst, but, but it was interesting. It's a picture in the, <laughs> yeah. in the book. That was Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan was a little bit trickier to travel around. 
so we would just buy this uh, ship graveyard, uh, basically. And well, yeah, uh, a bit stranded in a car, right? in a <laughs> ship graveyard. And uh, my photographer, Elena Heatherwick, was just like, oh my God, we must get a portrait in front of the, the dying ships. You know, it's just so romantic and beautiful. And, you know, so we went there and kind of confidently. And then this guard is like, no, you know, you, you can't, you can't go here. So I had to bribe him. <laughs> I've never, honestly, apart from the train situation as well in Azerbaijan, oh my God. Um, I haven't really, I'm not, yeah, I'm not into that, um, no. But, um, but we did, I had to give him like kind of five pounds and he let us through <laughs> and then he was like, no, yo, five minutes are up, they're up. Elena's just like, huh, hold your horses, I need to get this. So what, so what bad things happened? <laughs> well, um, so in retrospect, I will never do that again. We went to Georgia with Elena for 10 days. Elena's she, a photographer. Elena Heatherwick is the amazing photographer that shot the book. So it was just me and her, already quite stressed. We were both like single parents, you know, single moms, and you know, leaving our sons behind and doing this crazy kind of 10 day long trip. So emotional and doing this and um, you know but she was loving it she was just so giving so much emotion and basically in retrospect I should have taken a one day in bit you know uh, on the fifth day we should have just taken done, done nothing but we didn't we were working from we would wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning and be able to catch the light and all that and then would travel usually from one place to another and then finish at nine so by the time that we got to Svaneti, to our beautiful Tina, thank God she's a doctor. Yeah, Elena just kind of, she fainted and like had a, yeah, had an episode. So yeah, that was Not interesting. Good, no, it was, I, it was quite scary, but. I, I mean, for, for me, the, the main thing that struck me with seeing this book, and I said this to you before as well, I think it's amazing to go and shoot something in the unknown. I mean, we shoot books, we get ready, you know, we have a, a plan in our head, what we're going to shoot, Possibly sometimes which plates we're going to use, not always. Um, going here and shooting this is, is a bit of an unknown. It's a journey into what you're going to find. Was that yeah. a challenge? Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, I kind of did a recce before with my brother, so I had some context. But of course, we, we just got carried away. And so Zvaneti was unplanned. We just we just went. But actually, we, you know, we've seen some of the most beautiful things there. So yeah, it was, it was difficult. Some of the dishes have been shot in London. We did catch up a little bit. Okay. We came back, but we found a place um, in East London, very Georgian, um, a place, an old place with like really beautiful lights. So we shot it. But yeah, most of the food as well was shot there. Yeah, it was a challenge. I love books that are, you know, just what, whatever that you call it, food porn or whatever, you know, like super saturated, amazing looking, you know, super styled. I'm kind of trying to move away from that. I think there's beauty in just dishes as they're served, as they're cooked um, in people's homes. And there's something beautiful about it. That's Did my, you come back that's and my want vibe. to cook a stir fry straight away? It's like, you know, when you travel <laughs> to a region and all the food is... Yeah, because a region that uses food so predominantly with characteristics you sometimes want to eat something completely different when you when you go yes what's the first thing you ate when you came back i I, when i came back from our trip in azerbaijan and we shot everything i had uh, the black heath festival the next day and i decided to cook that plov that you wanted (laughs) to cook with the crispy shell so I've, i've watched my friend make it but i haven't actually made it before so there was kind of a drum roll at the end. Basically, it's um, it's lavash that you kind of dip into clarified butter, <laughs> pretty much, and then you line um, a casserole dish, and then you make this beautiful saffron uh, plov, uh, so rice with um, uh, chicken and caramelized shallots and things and nuts. It's just such a beautiful dish. And then basically you close it, and then in the end, 
you take it out of the oven and you know it's like a pie it's like a crispy shell and inside you've got all of this beautiful rice so yeah drum roll when I kind of like caught the thing I was like I was honest though I told them I was like I don't know I don't know if this is going to work please you know like bear uh, with me yeah bear with me and then and I did it and it turned out it was fine I was just like whoo so, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't make that one for you today. I made a different plov, but um, it's not as it's not as difficult as you thought. No, it's, no. I, I looked at it and I was like, "So this is later, my, later, yeah, later. <laughs> We'll do it another time." So this is another question: Where, for a person using your book, where would which recipes should they start with? Which ones are the ones? that you think will also be approachable and then give them an idea of the flavors? Before the plums are out of season, if there's still some around, do the kemali, uh, the, the plum sauce. And, and you're the using green gauges mostly for I use, I use, Yeah, I use green gauges if I can find them somewhere nice. Yeah, and uh, actually my allotment had, um, my neighbor had some plum trees, so I was like, can I have some plums, please? <laughs> but that's it's an a, amazing sauce. We, we serve it with lamb a lot Yeah, do you have it? Yeah, yeah I, I think it's wonderful. And they serve it with mm. everything. So apart from, you know, it's a condiment that they use with uh, meat, but I also had with fish in the Kedah Mountains um, in the south of Georgia as well but with um, uh, what was it river trout in the mountains they just fried it very simply and they just put it's like oh plum sauce with trout interesting but it just worked so well there's so much garlic and spice in it that kind of really works uh, so that's so beetroot and kemali for sure one of them the shahplof that I've just told you about with the lavash I think it's um if you're doing a dinner party, it's quite a nice and actually an easy Ascent, option please. because you yeah you do it and it's quite quite a showstopper and then all you have to do is just some chopped you know vegetables or some pickles or something, not you don't need much, not much else with it. Um. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently: Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. What else? What else is there? Give us one this, more. One more. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, I mean the dumplings. Uh, they are Hinkali dumplings. Are oh, some one of the yeah. I I just love them so much. They're delicious. They've um, one thing though. If you do make them, I do recommend chopping the meat by hand and not buying the pre-minced stuff. I know. Sorry, it's just to make it a bit easier. Just to make it a bit easier, <laughs> but it, it is much nicer. But maybe if you practice, maybe yeah, minced minced meat is fine. <laughs> But they're delicious and uh, served with a little bit of if you if you take if you cook butter in the pan just a little bit so it becomes golden like with brown butter so nice and loads of cracked pepper nice. and maybe crispy onions if you were so inclined. <laughs> You're gonna get everyone very hungry. <laughs> okay, so what's what's next for you? So you've written two books about kind of a continuation of a region. What what yep. what else are you planning? Um, if it's okay to ask. Yeah. I think so, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to work on the third project and I'm going back to Ukraine, actually. Um, but um, you know that Ukraine is a massive country and there are bigger than France, actually, even without Crimea. But there are so many influences. It's so diverse. You know, people kind of talk about Eastern European cuisine as this thing, you know, they just say it's potatoes and dumplings, but that's, you know, nothing. It's just not true. Um, each country is very regional and what you find in the south of Ukraine is so different 
than what you find kind of in Northwest. So Northwest is forests and mushrooms and you know these really rich earthy flavors and in the south we've actually got quite a big uh, um, Tatar influence from Crimean Tatars so my plan is to travel the border and um, uh, and it's through a prism of summer kitchens um, so we have this thing in Ukraine uh, it's so hot in the summer uh, it's really romantic. I mean, it's nothing glamorous, and, and I never even realized how amazing this thing was that I grew up with. But uh, we've got this separate little brick building. I mean, building. I don't know how to call it. It's structure, like a. It's a kitchen, and it's a summer kitchen. So back in the day, uh, how it all started was in the fifties. Um, a couple would get married, and before kind of building their big house and uh, you know doing their allotment and growing the things, they would build this summer kitchen. And they'd sleep there. So from April, one in the warm kind of months, from uh, from April to October, that that live in this summer kitchen and they build their life around basically. Um, and they kind of stuck around, and um, uh, your life would move because of the heat, especially in the south. Your life would move from your house, which you, by the way, don't have to clean, like and kind of yeah, have children running around, or whatever. Everybody's in the summer kitchen, so that's easier. Uh, it's because you're doing all of the preserving, fermenting etc you know preserving the seasons for uh, the following year in September again you have all of your windows and doors open um, so it's just a really beautiful thing um, so I decided to kind of travel do 10 different summer kitchens all over Ukraine so somewhere by Crimea then I want to go near Poland or Moldova there's a really cool uh, town near the Moldovan border which they call Ukrainian Venice it's called Vilkava now everybody just travels by boats and it's just oh, beautiful yeah, there's a lot more to discover even in my own country, so I thought I'll go back and talk about summer kitchens because they're disappearing as well. So that's another thing. I'm just always Preserving. scared that things are going to go away. So many things that I've seen in Caucasus as well. There are a few essays at the back and, you know, traditions are going. And the same is happening with summer kitchens. You know, people are either turning them into dog kernels or, or just storage space or just getting rid of them altogether. Yeah. It's the world changes. Can you feel when you're traveling there? Can you feel a start of tourism to the area? I mean, right now, this has kind of been quite a big year for books about the region. Yeah. Um, can you feel it there? Is it yeah, anything? I already felt it when I went for my research, especially especially Georgia. Georgians are doing really, really well at that. There's loads of enterprising kind of women who the dedicatsi that I talk about the, mo- the mother men. You're going to read first. I can read, second, yeah. yeah. Uh, but they are basically opening up their houses, so they have guest houses, some of them quite large, and then uh, you know it's again nothing glamorous, and you have to be kind of prepared for this kind of thing. But I think there's it's, it's a it's a lovely thing as well, and then you you get to know them, and then they teach you how to make dumplings. You know, it's it's amazing. It's really great. Azerbaijan was harder. They've got a, they've got this whole thing of, um, you know, I don't know. At least in Baku, it's kind of turning into Dubai type place. I think so. I don't know. It was it was a bit harder, but luckily I've I've uh, I've, I've met someone, um, this woman uh, who's a baker, um, and she's she was incredible. So she really helped us out and took us everywhere. And she took us to Lenkara. If you do go to Azerbaijan, Lenkaran in the south of Azerbaijan, uh, bordering with Iran, was an incredible place. Um, uh, yeah, really yeah, interesting. Strong influences of food from everywhere yeah. in the region. I want you to read this part about women because I found it fascinating, and I'm always interested in in strong women. So if you, so this is um, uh, I was going to. I really wanted to call 
the cookbook, this dedicatio, because uh, it's it's the name means from Georgian is translated as mother man. I thought it was a really interesting thing, but then I had to change it to make it a little bit more accessible. So I've got, oh, but I've got the essay here, luckily, and um, uh, this is Galina. She's another superhero woman. Uh, so what I've seen a lot was um, meeting all of these women and um, uh, quite a lot of men, whether they were not being not being critical or anything, but it's just something that I've noticed. They would kind of just stand and have a cigarette and relax, and all the women are doing everything, everything, everything. So crazy. And uh, and then my friend said, well, you know, the Dekatsi. I was like, what's this? She's like, mother man. And um, I don't know, I kind of, uh, even though the Georgians were like, oh, no, 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 you just call an older woman that. I'm like, mm, no, no, I don't know. I'm kind of like, I'm going to adopt this. I, like, I, I, really, li I really like this. I'll just read the, the passage. So the Dekatsi, the mother man. Uh, my whole life I have been fascinated and even slightly obsessed with strong women. I wouldn't be able to describe what life was like pre-1939, extremely tough, I imagine. But it seems to me that World War II, coupled with atrocities committed by the Soviet Union, has produced a generation of women that could move mountains. When somebody told me the meaning of the word dedikatsi in Georgia, which literally translates as mother man, it was almost an epiphany. My grandfather Victor, who escaped concentration camps and was imprisoned for a couple of years by the Soviets, was a quiet man. Gentle by nature, he was forced to retreat further into a withdrawn and subdued state following what happened to him in the 1930s and 40s. I remember seeing him quietly sitting on his chair in the kitchen when, he, when we visited, while my grandmother Lucia, a formidable force with the straightest back I've ever seen, was running around cooking, taking care of the farm animals and looking after their six children. Vitishka, with his James Dean golden locks and piercing blue eyes, would just be having a talk on his filterless Prima cigarette. They are so strong, I don't know how <laughs> he managed to live to the ripe age of 90. Uh, sipping on a glass of homemade wine if my grandmother felt benevolent enough that day to let him. He never talked about what happened to him during the war. The trauma of it was, uh, must have been too great. And Lucia was a true matriarch. Not in the sense recognized by society as such, um, but she really was. And this was a familiar pattern that I have come across uh, throughout Georgia. Of course, there have been tons of incredibly talented, strong and hardworking men that I've met. But it struck me how many women were so much like Lucia, if more self-sacrificial. And not all of them were my grandmother's generation, or even near. This is not feminism in the way that we all strive to achieve in the West, but altogether a different notion. This is women doing everything, so not exactly the equality that feminism represents, but it's no less admir ad admirable. Visiting the incredible Georgian vineyards, I've experienced the remarkable achievements of the relatively recent pioneers of organic winemaking, the men that take pride and glory in producing their natural ancient Quevri wines. They're saving one of the oldest traditions known to men, so to me, they might as well be saving the world. Uh, but what people don't talk about as much are the women behind these men. I have witnessed wives and 87-year-old mothers staying up until 1 a.m. cooking and serving so that their husbands and sons could entertain potential wine exporters of, or food and drink writers. And those women also, also often work the vineyards, have other jobs beside and, ra and raise children. They're super women. In no way I'm passing judgment, but all the work um, they do at the vineyards and beyond should be recognized and highly respected. And the dedicatsi role is not exclusive to the winemaking world. I have seen it fulfilled in many houses and not just in Georgia. So, yeah, I don't know, the book is, is it was quite, um, it was quite a, an emotional a journey, actually, I think. Um, I think that there's a lot of images of women cooking and stuff like that. I think it's, it's obviously a very strong aspect to it. Do they still move skills on to the younger generation? Yes, and can I show you something really beautiful? 
this galena that i just showed you it was uh, that was one of the most amazing days and i want to show you this picture which is completely natural and elena bless her like half fainting and all of that <laughs> she managed to take this which was a completely just a natural moment so this is galena and she's been She's got this uh, b bakery basically in her house, uh, this old bakery where she makes bread and she wanted to show me the process. They don't waste any energy of the fire. So throughout the day, she cooked about five different breads depending on what the temperature was like in the oven uh, from the beginning of the day to the end. She was, and you know, the, the, she had basically like a basin, like a, a bath full of dough. And, um, and this little boy, her grandson, was just the most helpful. Uh, he was just observing her and helping her. And you know, she'd be, she'd tell him to do this, that, and he, he just did it with such passion. He was just so, you know, admired her so much. It was something, it was an incredible day. And then at some point, you know, she was tending the fire and he just came and put his hand on the lower, her lower back. And I just, yeah, yeah. And Elena was like, oh my God, <laughs> get out of my way. <laughs> Bless them, so intense. But um, it was a beautiful thing to see. So I'm, I think they are doing a great thing for, for new generations, both female and, and male, uh, evidently. Hi, um, can you characterize the main differences between Georgian and Azeri cooking? Yes, Azerbaijan has a lot more Iranian influence, I feel. So all of the plovs, uh, there's a lot of rice and actually, uh, but Turkic as well is hard. So you made hingal today. Quite so that's saffron as well. It's quite, yeah, they're, yeah, they're quite, yeah. So saffron is used a lot in Azerbaijan, not so much in Georgia. Georgians ferment a lot and Azerbaijanis don't. They use, they use vinegar from what I've seen. And all the dairy produce, does this carry uh, through? The, uh, the dairy produce definitely carries through, yeah. So uh, Azerbaijan, in terms of cheese, I, I, I'm not so sure, but definitely the yogurt, uh, they call it matsoni in Georgia and kadik in, in Azerbaijan. So th that's the same kind of strain of bacteria that they use and it's very similar and delicious. But yeah, I, I feel like uh, Georgian cuisine is almost more unique in a way. Uh, it's more its own thing. And also That's maybe my feeling. Not being very uh, objective about <laughs> Maybe not, maybe not. But no, it's, it felt that way. No, 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 I do. No, I love Azeri food. I love it. I, I actually grew up with more Azerbaijani food because of my auntie. But there are so many things that are similar. And, you know, famously, Armenians, Azerbaijanis and Georgians actually argue quite a lot with each other. Who's, who's, who's this dish is from where? And, you know, it's, there's a... Oh, like, it doesn't matter, from, guys. It's all delicious. Yeah, Let's I mean, just go from with our this. experience, because there's, uh, I come from Israel, and there's a huge Jewish diaspora that comes from these areas. A lot of the food was extremely familiar for me uh, in these kind of interpretations that happen in the Middle East of, of this food. Uh, and it was really interesting to see Olia's kind of maybe purer kind of take of it, where the stuff we get has probably been bastardized quite a bit to, <laughs> to suit what happens there. But there's always an argument about where food is from, whatever, but, but whatever food it is. I did a talk with uh, at Soas University um, a few months back for soup, guys that are helping refugees kind of through chef training and stuff. And the topic of conversation was, um, uh, you know, food memory and kind of transferring it from one country to another as you migrate. And uh, there was a lady anthropologist that came out and did a talk, and I loved her. She just didn't mince her words. She was like, authenticity, we laugh at the word, ha, 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 You know, she's like, authentic is really, what is authentic, you know? That's true. My grandma took, you know, lived in Uzbekistan for 10 years. My dad was born there. She used to make these dumplings called manti. You know, they're made with lamb originally and like lamb fat. 
she eventually moved to Ukraine uh, with my Ukrainian granddad and she started making with pork belly because she couldn't find any lamb. And are they any less delicious? No. Are they authentic? Who cares? <laughs> They're delicious. I think the best food happens through this kind of actually carrying one thing, one recipe to another country and so forth. Any other questions? I'm quite close to getting an allotment. Yeah. And I was wondering, and I think you, I think you Yes, so definitely the Penny Royal herb. I'm going to nip downstairs in a minute. I'm going to bring it to you. I really want you to try it. Uh, so they call it Ambala, but it's just, I, I love it. I don't know, my friend Alisa was like, oh, it's a bit too strong for me. But I, I, it's incredible, and you put it in, and you just can't tell. Like, the whole dish just... So I think it's called Penny Royal Mint. And it obviously grows like a like a you know weed, so very easy to grow. <laughs> Best kind of thing for yeah. an allotment, isn't it? Uh, they use marigold petals a lot. I don't know if they do much. It, like they add color, I guess. But I, I don't. Oh. I can't really. Te- like I can't really. I'm not. I think they're mostly convinced. replacement for like the saffron. The saffron kind of thing. Hue, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. What else? If if you grow tomatoes and they never ripen, there's a really good ferment, green fermented tomato recipe in here, and they become absolutely delicious. So you slice, you, so you get a green tomato unripened, uh, you cut kind of like not completely through, but do like two incisions, and then you stuff it with garlic, chili, and celery leaf, and then you just put it in the brine and see you later, forget about it, and then you when you take them out, it's just ah, oh, this is the most best umami pickle flavor is just incredible. I highly recommend it if you have time and you want to get into it. It's a really good one. And peas. You should always grow peas. That's always grow peas. Any other food, yeah, yeah, you should yeah. always grow peas. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure you fertilize your soil. Find I have a really good um, guy called Tom Jones from Wales and he can bring you some. <laughs> of course he's called Tom Jones. <laughs> and I can bring you, he, he, I can uh, connect you and he can bring you some organic pig and cow mug. <laughs> <laughs> He delivers it to London. It really helped. Everything just go, grows like crazy now. A bit too much, actually. I need to go there tomorrow. <laughs> I'm feeling, thinking. <laughs> is there a reason why f- fermentation like, is so prominent in those areas and it's kind of been lost in, in the UK? Uh, yeah, I don't know if, if the UK has ever fermented vegetables so much. Oh, why is that? I don't know if it might be originally a Nordic even influence. And then it just traveled down with the Soviet Union. I'm I don't know, because not it would travel up from us as well. I think the whole kind of... Area, yeah. Yeah, I think that where there's abundance of growth in summer times and there's so so little in the winter months, you I know, think the, the, there was a big tradition another, of fermenting. Another reason why, maybe, is because... Um, Vinegar was actually really quite expensive, or there was no, you know, there was nothing in the Soviet Union. So what, what's easier than, you know, if you've already got a tradition of preserving food, people were really savvy. So I think maybe that's why it survived. So if, I don't know the original kind of how it how it came to our and like land, but definitely it was an easy way to preserve vegetables and have them throughout winter. Like we even preserve, we even fermented aubergines. They're delicious. Yeah, I think everything gets fermented as countries that have a because they have a bigger difference between summer and winter don't they in that area as well a bit more than the UK the UK tends to be a bit iffy sometimes on the summer I don't know if you've just noticed the one thing (laughs) but you don't get that full kind of 
aspect of, of a massive growth that you can then preserve and you yeah. want to use throughout the year afterwards. And I think that's a big thing. And in using just salt and water is probably the cheapest, Ch- cheapest, cheapest way and to delicious. But to in the 80s, things. my mom said, oh, don't eat too much of the, you know, pickled, whatever it was, yeah. tomato or gherkin. You know, it's got salt because at, at that time salt was the enemy. It was funny. And now we know that it's actually healthy for you. Great. In, in moderation. <laughs> But it's well, fermented foods. No, fermented but foods definitely. But gut. salt, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Salt is a you know yeah. in moderation. But fermented <laughs> foods have kind of come full circle. Yeah. Back. It's it's hoping, interesting hoping to see if they become stuff. a big part of the UK yeah. as well because they are everywhere else in the world. Just the UK <laughs> seems to be vinegar based. Yeah. Actually, kimchi and Korean food has had a lot of effect as well yeah. on eating fermented stuff. So it's interesting to see the different fermentation around the world and and where it's going. Where here was always very, very vinegar-based, which yeah. you all know, pickled onions and eggs and everything you do in vinegar is a very different kind of <laughs> tone, yeah, flavours. If I was to travel to Georgia as a tourist, would I be able to access this kind of food? Yeah, and at the back of the book, I've got all addresses and suggestions and also please just email me and you know I'm always there you know I love I love the people in the region so I always want to help so I really recommend that you go and travel there it's amazing I was going to ask a question about people who want to travel there could you give people like a four places you should go yeah um I've got a little map here oh wow I really went to town with my signature did I did I do one for you as well like this I did (laughs) so in Georgia I mean obviously you'd, you'd probably fly into Tbilisi but then Zvaneti, the, the mountainous place that is out of this world, is just magical. Um, at some point, um, uh, Tina's son, Lasha, who's 16 or something, took, you know, we went for a walk in the forest to get the spring water and he just like showed me things that he forages and it was just incredible, it was amazing. And then, um, and then uh, Zugdidi, so this, is the w- so this is where you go for your ajika, the red ajika salt, that's amazing as well. And in Azerbaijan, Lenkaran by the Iranian border was um, really mind-blowing, I and loved this is it. This Caspian? Uh, no, Caspian no, is here, and this is... Uh, yeah. showing my bad geography. Yeah, <laughs> this is the Black Sea. The Black Sea. Yeah, but really, I mean, it's everywhere. I'm, I, I still haven't, I need to go back and... and do, do some, more, yeah. Do more. There's always yeah. more to do, no? I'm getting married in Georgia next year, so Are you excited? maybe we'll get a chance. <laughs> so food. Oh yeah, food. Uh, so you've got <laughs> Tina's um, khachapuri. Normally khachapuri are kind of uh, round, flatbreads stuffed with cheese. Uh, but she showed me this recipe. She's like, if I've got loads of people coming over and you know, just take a tray and basically dough, cheese, dough, and then which plov did you make? The saffron plov. The chestnut. Chestnut oh, the chestnut. So, oh, there's this one area in um, in Azerbaijan which was in the hills and basically like chestnut country. It was just beautiful. And this lady just told me a, a recipe that handshelled uh, guys today. This is what. Oh I was my doing god! Today. I know. Uh, <laughs> I regretted it later. But <laughs> so you know how in the Iranian uh, plov. I'm so sorry about that, babe. They so they do the plovs. They do like a crispy bottom thing, and she told me that they do one with uh, kind of grated pumpkin and chestnuts. So that's that's one of them, and then you've got hingal, yeah, yeah, like an, a dumpling without dumpling. Yeah, so it's uh, sheets of pasta, uh, crispy little spiced lamb, and um, yogurt, uh, herb and yogurt sauce on top. Oh this is God. an Azerbaijani dish that I really love. It's so comforting, and then uh, we've got a fresh salad with walnuts. It's yeah. a very it's a cuisine that's based on. Oh yeah, a lot of nuts, a lot of plums. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Honey and Coke. We hope you enjoyed it, even if you didn't get to try the food. I promise everything was absolutely delicious. There are some wonderful guests coming up in the next few weeks and will be available to download. So make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave us a review if you can. That'll be really, really great for us. This show is expertly produced by Hester Kant, music by the great Ellis Russell. If you want to come along to one of our talks, you can join our mailing list on our website, honeyandco.co.uk, or follow us on our social media at honeyandco.co.uk.